1: Paul has finally come, a little brisk today, but uh, it's nice to be here in such a nice, warm auditorium. And we don't even have to think about the weather in here, right? All we have to think about is learning the Word of God. And we've got the person here to teach us the Word of God, and that's Caleb Colley. And uh, we love Caleb so much. Uh, You know, they reside in Jackson, Tennessee. He preaches for the North Jackson Church of Christ, and he's been there for about a year and a half You know that he's married to Becca, and they've been married, it's hard for me to believe this, already eight years. And they have two children. Maggie is five, and Ellis Glenn will be three in February. And uh, Caleb is such a skilled communicator of the Word of God. He's very educated, but he's an extremely humble man. And he's just now getting down here. I was trying to go slow, Caleb, to give you more time. Here we go. I can say some more things about you. But uh, I just love Caleb, I've known him a long time, and many of you have, and uh, just very thankful that uh, he accepted the invitation to come down and be with us tonight, and I think Glenn and Cindy, you, are you guys happy that they're here? Yes, they are, yeah, so they're going to actually spend a couple of days, and I know that's a real treat for the Collie family, but uh, we look forward to Caleb's lesson, sharing wisdom about stewardship, stewardship will be the title of the lesson tonight.
0: Okay, great. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. That will be our text for tonight. We're just going to do a simple study of verses 6 through 11 as we consider the themes of wisdom about stewardship. And there are a number of directions we could take this, but I would like for us to think tonight about the connection between money and contentment. Money and contentment. There is a connection, but it's not the connection that a lot of people think. A lot of people think the more money you have, the more content you are. But in reality, for most people, if they have more money and you ask them whether they would be content, their answer would be, I would if I just had a little bit more money. And so the connection we're going to find in the Bible between money and contentment is really that if we use our money the right way, it will make us more content. If we think about our money as God wants us to, it will make us more content. If we are using not just our money, but all of our beings to the glory of God, then that will make us content. Because Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 says that the whole of man is to fear God and keep his commandments and not to accumulate a lot of wealth. There are five principles about money and our contentment in this passage that will help us to have God as the Lord over our hearts as far as our money is concerned so that money doesn't rule over us. Let me just go ahead and tell you what they are and then we'll get into them momentarily. The first is that godliness with contentment is great gain. The second is that all material possessions are only of temporary use. The third is that we must be content with God's provision. The fourth is that the love of money is terrible And the fifth is that the way to avoid the snare is to pursue God. So we'll talk about those five things, and none of them will take all that much time. I suppose it's very tempting for us to, especially as we get into the gift-giving season and the time of year when advertisers reap a lot of their harvest, to be discontent with what we have. I remember when I was a kid, we got the Sears catalog about this time of year. And we start flipping through the pages and finding all these things that we didn't know we wanted. But we found out that we wanted them. We didn't know we were discontented with what we had or that ours was not the latest thing. Or that ours was not the most fun thing. We were happy with the toys that we had until we saw what was in the catalog. That's kind of funny. And there's some excitement about what we're going to get and things that's totally innocent. But as we grow, sometimes we fail to mature from that childish mindset And we go to Bass Pro Shop, and we see that there's a boat there that's better than the boat we have. And we didn't realize, we until we went into the store, we were content. But now we see that there's this bigger and better thing. And on Amazon, as we scroll through, I don't know how it is with you, but Amazon knows everything I've ever looked at. And so they tell me all of these things that are sort of like what I looked at, and I think, wow, that's even better. And I start to think, maybe I need to buy that. And as we drive down the road, we see all the billboards and we get emails. I'm telling you, Black Friday is coming up soon. And the people, every company I've ever bought anything from ever, will email me around Black Friday and try to get me to buy something else. And so it can be very tempting to start to think, my whole life needs an upgrade. I'm just behind on all the purchases that I should have been making all this time. And this one's not as good as the next one. And this, this could be better than what it is and to just have a general aura of discontent in my life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 8 says, the eye is never full of seeing and the ear is never full of hearing. So we've got to be very careful about not drifting into being discontented with what God has given us. That's the idea behind our studying this passage. So the first thing we want to observe is that godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's read beginning in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, it's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to have a lot of things, as long as we don't deceive ourselves into thinking that contentment comes from having those things. Look down at verse 17 in the same passage, and you'll see how balanced the Apostle Paul is. So he's not saying that rich people are are automatically lost. Look at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So you can enjoy the good things that you have. You can have a lot of things. It's not wrong. Instruct these rich people. He doesn't say instruct them not to be rich. He says instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That echoes the Sermon on the Mount. Remember in Matthew 6 when Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven that will be permanent. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Oh, there's that connection between money and contentment. Using it for good purposes. Being liberal in your giving. Making sure our families know that we don't trust in riches. That we're thankful for what we have, but what we have in Christ is so much more valuable than the riches. Making sure that we tell ourselves, Matthew 16, 26, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his own soul? That's much more important. So the first thing we learn is that contentment is not from our money, but is from our Godliness, our relationship with God. Number two, see that all material possessions are of temporary use. They're temporary. Look at verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Very much like Ecclesiastes 5 verse 15. In fact, that's the passage Paul might have in mind here where the author, I believe, Solomon says that we come into the world naked and when we go out of the world we cannot take anything with us. It reminds us of Luke 12 verses 20 and 21 where Jesus told the parable of the rich fool. And I'm calling him a fool. It's not my origination. Remember Jesus said that God assessed him. As a fool. Because when he got a lot of benefits materially, he thought nothing of anybody else. He only thought of laying up his treasures for himself to build bigger barns so that he could expand his own empire. So his relationship with God and how he could steward his money for the benefit of God's work, even giving it at the temple, there's no mention of any charitable work or any donation or anything other than how he could expand his own property. And that was the wrong attitude. So all those material possessions were going to be of temporary use to him. Remember, God said to him, you're a fool and this night your soul will be required of you and then whose will these things be which you have collected? So he had collected a lot of things for himself and then he left it all behind. We must bear in mind, as much as we may enjoy the things we have, we will only use them for a little while, and we may not even get to use them till we die. Because the stock market could crash, or somebody could break in and steal it. Moth and rust can corrupt. All kinds of things can happen to our money. It's just that way with all of our earthly connections. People may like us one day and don't like us another day. We may be honored in a certain circle one day, but then something happens in our life and we're dishonored by the same people. We may have friends one day, but they're fickle. All these changes, all these things that can happen to us in our lives, all these uncertainties, they pertain to money, but they do not pertain to our relationship with God. He is always going to be there. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So even though those earthly things are fleeting, Our investments may not come through the way we think they are. Our relationship with God is certain. Okay, now in the third place. Notice, we must be content with the Lord's provision. Look at verse 8. Paul says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. It's very much like Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 33 and 34. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What things? In the context, it's the necessities of life. So with these things, be content. Whatever the Lord gives you, say, I have enough. That's very difficult to say. Because we look at other people who have more than we do and we start to compare ourselves with them and we forget about our mansions in heaven. We forget about going and having all of our needs and desires met forever in heaven and we start to think about somebody who has a bigger house than we do. We start to think about a car that we would like to have. Or we start to look at our bank account and compare it to that that other people have. This is a problem in the corporate world because there might be a guy who sees other people in the company who are working basically the same type of job he is. They sit down at their desk and they do the same kind of work that he does except they make ten times more. Maybe in the same company. Ten times more than he does. But we all know that that person who makes ten times more is looking at another guy or lady in the same company, who does basically the same job he does, and that person's making ten times more than he is. Maybe there's only one comp- one person in the company who's making more than everybody else in the company, and that's the CEO or the president, let's say. But even he is looking at the CEO or president of another company who's making ten times more than he is. You see, in that circumstance, if people aren't being content with their relationship with God, nobody's happy. Nobody's content because there's always somebody who's doing better than you financially. But the person who's doing better than you financially may not be doing better overall than you are. That person just has more money, but that doesn't mean he has more of everything that's important. Godliness with contentment is great gain. His possessions are temporary and we can be content with what God gives us. The American novelist Joseph Heller, who most famously wrote Catch-22, was once at a party in the Hamptons, and somebody, a friend of his, came up to him and pointed to this young man across the room, and he said, do you see that guy over there? And Heller said, yeah. He said, that young man is 25 years old, and he is a hedge fund manager, and he made more money this year than you will ever make from any of your books. And Heller looked at him for a second, and he said, I understand that, but I have something that he'll never have. And his friend said, what is that? You may already know the answer. He said, enough. But for the Christian, we always have enough because we have an an invaluable possession. We have something that's more valuable than anything that this world can ever supply. That's why Jesus said in Mark 9 at the end of the chapter that even if you had to cut out your eye in order to go to heaven, And he's not advocating that you literally mutilate your body, but he says if that's the deal you had to make to go to heaven or to keep both your eyes, you should choose to go to heaven. And that just takes our commitment to Christ's promises about what we can have in heaven to the maximum and minimizes the physical. Because our eyes are arguably as precious to us as any material thing in the world. You don't want somebody plucking off your eye. Or if that doesn't work for you, think about cutting off your hand. That's the other illustration Jesus used. Even if you had to cut off your hand to go to heaven, not talking about giving up your yacht, not talking about giving up your mansion, cutting off your very hand. Even if you had to make that deal in order to go to heaven, that's the deal you should make. So be content with God's provision of your material things And then look forward to His reward in heaven. Now bear in mind that if you're not content, if you're not satisfied with what God has given you, then you're blaming God. You're saying, God should have done better by me. Or God has given me insufficient. When in reality we give thanksgiving For everything that we have been given all the time. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. That's the command. Is that in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known to God. We give thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20 says. So our goal must be to have the right priorities, placing them on those rewards that we have upcoming in heaven. Now, number four, and we want to spend, I guess, probably more time on number four than on any of the others, and that is that the love of money is terrible. Again, not wrong to have things, not wrong to desire things, but to love money or to think I can't be satisfied unless I have something else. I've got Jesus, but I need something else to be satisfied. That love of money is terrible. Let's read verses 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires. This is just terrible. The bad effects of this just keep on rolling out in the passage. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Do you get the idea he's trying to emphasize this is bad? You want to be plunged into ruin and destruction? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil... And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay, what are the reasons Paul gives in this passage for why the love of money is so evil? He lists five. You may parse it out differently and come up with a different number, but it seems to me there are five reasons in these two verses why the love of money is so bad. The first is that it leads people into temptations unawares or unsuspectingly. Because it's called a snare. And if you look at that word snare in the passage, it's like a trap that you don't see until you're already in the trap. So it's a dangerous thing and you're in it before you know it. It's very difficult to admit that you're greedy. It's difficult to admit you're stingy, you're covetous. With some sins, you know for sure if you're committing them. And you may be deceived about whether you ought to commit the sin, but you're not deceived as to whether you're doing it. I mean, for example, in Colossians 5, 3 through 7, the Apostle Paul lists a number of sins in which somebody can live. If you're frequently practicing these, if you're habitually doing these things, you're living in these sins, one of them is fornication or adultery. If you're committing that sin, you know it. If somebody caught you and said, you know what you're doing? You're committing adultery. You might say, oh, I wish I hadn't been found out. But you would know that you were doing it. With covetousness, it's not necessarily that way. It's very tempting to say, only people who make a lot more money than I do are covetous. That couldn't be me. I mean, look, I don't live in in the huge mansion. And I don't drive the Ferrari. And I, I I don't, obviously I'm not covetous. But wait a minute. To whom was Jesus preaching in, let's say, Luke 12, verse 15, when he said, Beware and keep on guard against every form of covetous. For not even when a person has an abundance does his life consist in the things that he possesses. He was talking to common, ordinary, wage-earning workers. And he says, you have to beware. You have to watch out for this. Ordinary, average people like you and me and that word translated, beware, is a word that means, it's a word. literally it's a word that has to do with vision. So it's look carefully, watch out for this, because if you don't strain to look at it, you will miss it. That means it's a snare. You'll be led into it without knowing, and then you'll be maybe at the end of your life, and you'll be looking back and thinking about what you prioritized, and it was money. It was to the neglect of spiritual things, it was possessions, material goods. So watch out for it. It it reminds me of watching a movie with my wife. And sometimes there'll be something that's on the screen for just a a very brief moment. And I'll think, we really have to catch this. This is really important. So I'll say, did you see that? Watch out. Maybe, Maybe if she had looked away, maybe to one of the children, or maybe she had glanced at her phone, I'll hit that button that goes back 10 seconds. You know the button I'm talking about? I'll hit the button to go back and I'll say, now, watch out for this. Look for it. Now, I'm amazed at how many times I'm telling her this and she already knew that it was there. Maybe I didn't think she was looking, but she can see out of the corner of her eye. Sometimes I think she can see out of the back of her head the way she keeps track of what the children are doing. It's wonderful, but she has much better attention than I do. But I'll hit play again, and that thing is just right there. And that's the word that Jesus uses about covetousness. So you don't just accidentally go through your life and avoid the snare of covetousness. It's where you have to focus on it. And then he emphasizes it doubly there in Luke twelve fifteen, and says, keep on your guard. So look out for it, keep on your guard, or you will just slip right into it. So it leads people into this snare, uh, this uh, love of money is terrible because you get into it without realizing it. But then notice in the next place, it makes people act foolishly if they love money. And this happens in innumerable ways. We've already mentioned that somebody loves money is losing his soul, so that's very foolish. But even short of losing your soul, it will make you act really silly. There are a lot of people who have made wise investments, and they're real smart about money. Maybe they've actually only been smart about one opportunity to invest, and they invested and now they're multimillionaires because they happen to jump in at exactly the right time. But if somebody makes a lot of money for whatever reason he's liable to think that he knows a lot about everything. Aren't there people like that? They maybe they know a lot about one thing, but they've been deceived into thinking they know a lot about everything. I remember one of my professors at Faulkner University was a historian. He was very sharp person and he told us about a family member. I think it was getting to be about Thanksgiving time, kind of like this time of year. He was talking about one of his family members whom he would see at Thanksgiving or Christmas and have to sit across the table from him, but he could hardly stand it. Because this family member was a know-it-all about history. Only problem was, he knew nothing about history. And he had never taken history courses He thought he was intelligent. It's hard to be around somebody like that, isn't it? Where they're a know-it-all and you happen to know because you've studied something about it that they really don't know what they're talking about. But sometimes people who've made a lot of money and sometimes people who've been appointed to a certain job or a certain position think they can tell you about everything else. They become arrogant. They become presumptuous. And so the love of money... Even where people have attained some degree of wealth can make people act foolishly. And then it can turn people into ruin and many griefs. It can just ruin your life. Because you put all your eggs in that basket, and then you lose the money that you thought was going to make you content or perfectly happy. Because it's so fluid. The money situation can change so quickly. And if you invest yourself in that, and even if you get to keep your money and enjoy a lot of the benefits, if you get to the end of your life and you've invested yourself in that, you will have regrets. And I'm telling you that not just as church people, but as people. Let me give you an example. Bronnie Ware was an Australian, is an Australian hospice worker who deals with people in their last 12 weeks of their lives And she wrote a book about the regrets that people have when they're on their last few weeks of life. And she cataloged these as she did interviews with hundreds of them during their last few days about their top five regrets. The number two regret among all of her patients is one that all of the male patients mentioned. And that was they were sorry they had worked so much. They said, I wish I had worked less. They didn't lay on their deathbed saying, I wish I had striven more for that promotion. Or I wish I had spent more time away from my family so that I could have earned more money, got more bonuses, worked more overtime so that I could provide more material goods. And incidentally, those of us who have grown up and then look back on our childhood don't remember the stuff that we were given. We remember the time spent with our family and the activities that we did together hanging out together doing fun things talking about spiritual things going to church together we don't remember all of the gifts and so you may look back on your childhood and say if I could go back and talk to my parents maybe they're long gone but I, I would tell them all of those things didn't matter what mattered was that I was with you so that we had time together but what was the number one regret I've given you the number two regret, I wish I hadn't worked so much, but what about the number one regret? It was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And that may sound like modern psychobabble, but really think about it. If someone is in a rat race, and always trying to be a people pleaser, and trying to live up to the expectations of others... Rather than saying, what's most important to me? And for somebody who believes in the Bible, the most important thing is going to be spiritual matters, working to be close to God and close to fellow man and building up the church. Those are the things that are most important. Not, what does everybody in society think of me? So being a people pleaser. Ware writes, this was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it is easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. Health brings a freedom very few realize until they no longer have it. Uh, Let me illustrate it. There were these two sisters who were in college, at a Bible college, not around here. You don't know them. But they were unmarried, and as they took a course on the book of Acts or something like that, and they got inspired to be more evangelistic, they talked to one another and said, we're going to go be missionaries. We don't have many connections, we're not married, we don't have families yet, we're going to take some time to go in the mission field, some far off place. And they began to make plans... They were so convicted that this is what they should do. They picked out a country. They started thinking about how they were going to raise the money. They went home for Thanksgiving or Christmas break. And they told their parents. They said, guess what we've decided to do? We are going to go into the mission field. And their parents said, oh dears, that is wonderful. But before you go into the mission field, we would like for you to have some security first. So what we want you to do, is if you could get master's degrees first. Go ahead and get your master's degrees. And then we would like for you to work a little while and build up some money in your bank accounts, save some money, and that way as you go into the mission field, you will have some security. The wind was kind of taken out of their sails. They went back to school, a little bit discouraged, and they went to their professor who had taught them about evangelism and had inspired them so to be missionaries. They they told them, what their parents had said. They said, uh, here's what they said about getting some security before we go. What they were telling the girls amounted to years. They were saying, oh yeah, you can go in the mission field, but work for years, go to school for years, and then you can think about doing that. So they explained the situation to the professor. They said, what should we tell our parents? And he thought for a minute, and he said, you tell them that we are all hurdling through space on a tiny rock. And one day, underneath each of us, a trap door will open. And we will fall through. And after we fall through that trap door, there will either be the everlasting arms of God to catch us, or there will be nothing at all. And you think a master's degree is going to give you security. You see, when somebody says, here's what I believe I should do. this I'm not binding it on everybody else, but here's what I think I should do to use my abilities to serve the Lord based on what He reveals to me in His Word. That's the priority. And that should set our agenda. Not, can I get some more of this world's security? Because we're leaning on the everlasting arms. We're not leaning on our master's degree. We're not leaning on our bank account. We're leaning on... God and His promises. And so we honor that by seeking first His kingdom in our lives. But if we get to the end of our lives and we realize there's a dissonance, there's a disconnect between what I said was number one and what I really treated as being number one, well, that plunges me into all sorts of ruin and disappointment in my life because I'll have so many regrets. But notice in the fourth place, it's the root, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. That's what the Apostle Paul says. All sorts of evil come from this. All kinds of compromises happen because people want their money. Am I willing to lie for it? Ephesians 4 says I should put away lying, but a lot of people lie for money. Am I willing to forsake the assembly so I can do my business, so I can make more money? A lot of people do that. Am I willing to abandon my family for money? Am I willing to be... Uh, Uh, making all kinds of loans that I cannot reasonably repay. Remember Romans 13 and verse 8 says, I owe no man anything. That means I don't make loans. I don't take out money if I don't think I reasonably have an expectation of being able to pay that back. And then the last one is, I, I wish we could spend more time on each of these, but the last one is, it makes following Christ off limits. If you love money, you cannot be a Christian. I say that simply because in Matthew 19... The rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to follow him. And Jesus said, go sell your possessions and come follow me. Give all that to the poor. And remember, he couldn't do it. Jesus doesn't require everybody to sell all his or her possessions. Otherwise, the Good Samaritan, for example, wouldn't have had any possessions to share with someone. And this passage calls on the rich people to have something to share. So Jesus is not saying be communistic or be socialistic or everybody must be in poverty. That's not what he's saying. But for that rich young man... Jesus knew that as long as he had those possessions, he could not follow him. That was the situation in his heart. So the person had to learn to put God first by selling all his possessions. That didn't mean, I suppose, that he couldn't have possessions later. But right then, the only thing that could save him was parting with his goods. And he was unable to do it. And he went away sorrowful. So the outcome of his coming to Jesus was he could not follow him because he could not turn loose of his money. So we've got to ask ourselves, if Jesus asked us today... If Jesus came to you personally and said, I need you to sell everything in order to follow me, would you be willing to do it? Would you say, okay, today I will list everything I've got or I will try to give everything I've got. Somehow I'd be willing to part with anything. There's nothing I would keep instead of following Jesus. So love of money makes following Jesus off limits. But then the last of our observations we want to make tonight comes from verse 11. It says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So the way to avoid the snare that we've just been talking about is to pursue the Lord. You do not get rid of the love of money by just telling yourself you're not going to love it. You have to put something in its place. And I would suggest if you're not an involved member, of the congregation at West Huntsville, and looking out on this wonderful crowd, I know I'm talking to many faithful folks who are dedicated. But if you're not, if you're not sacrificing anything to put your back into the work of the Lord, then it's going to be much harder for you to resist the love of money because you're going to worship something. Man is a worshiping creature. You're going to put something first. And if it's not the Lord and His kingdom, it's probably going to be money. Jesus emphasizes that in the Sermon on the Mount by talking more on the subject of money than any other subject. And so we've got to put something in its place. I would challenge you to get the list of ministries that West Huntsville has. And if you haven't checked some off, if you haven't checked multiple ones off, do it. I would challenge you to revisit your budget, your personal or family budget, and say, am I giving to God the scraps after I've paid for everything I want, seeing if I have anything left over to give to God? Or am I giving to Him first and then seeing what's left over to meet the other responsibilities? My entertainment, my travel, my housing, my medical costs. I would challenge us to ask, are my children learning to be sacrificial in their giving? Is it possible that my children know that they can either get something with their money or they can get something a little bit less with their money and give some to God? Just basic ideas to say, are we sacrificing anything to make sure that godliness and all of these other virtues that are mentioned in verse 11 are paramount rather than the love of money that the apostle is condemning in this passage? You've been very kind to listen, and we'll talk more in just a minute after the people from the classes have come in. I'll stop now. Thank you. Not all of you were in the auditorium in our lesson tonight, but we studied from First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, and as we extend the invitation in just a moment, I'd like to just read a few more verses from the same context and make some very brief remarks about them. Verse 12 through verse 16. It says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called... Focus on that phrase. We're going to focus on that. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You can do that tonight. Make the good confession in the presence of all of us. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The opportunity to obey the gospel is the opportunity to take hold of eternal life, And be on the road toward dwelling with God in unapproachable light. What an incredible opportunity. This is the best invitation you've ever been given. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus put it another way. He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the Lord's invitation that we extend tonight for you to lay hold on eternal life and to move toward heaven and have the assurance that you will go to heaven when this life is over. But you may be taking hold of something else. In your life, your priority is to take hold of, as we discussed in our lesson tonight, perhaps, this world's goods or money or prestige, or position, or honors, taking hold of something else. And I'd like for you to let go of that tonight. Jesus calls you to let go of that and take hold of what really matters. Be honest with yourself. If God exists, and the Bible is His Word, and Jesus is His Son, then the only thing in life that's worth taking hold of is a relationship with Him. Sometimes I go to funerals. I guess we all go to funerals. Maybe as a preacher, I go to a few more funerals than some other people do. But it's amazing to me that at funerals, there's a lot of discussion about what this person who has passed away took hold of during his life. And usually there'll be a speech, a eulogy, and perhaps none of the things that are mentioned are wrong in themselves. He took hold of being a fan of this sports team, or he took hold of spending a lot of time with his family, or he took hold of an important position at this company. He took hold of all these things. But sometimes there's very little mention of taking hold of his eternal life. And maybe it's because the person who's giving the eulogy just didn't know him well enough. Because if he had really known him better, he would know that the main thing he wanted to take hold of was heaven itself. And so there's not much mention of it. But sometimes I'm afraid that the eulogy is given and the discussion of the emphases of this person's life and what he took hold of is pretty accurate. I was at one just the other day where it was, really, I'm I'm not telling a, a fib here. It was about playing pool. And what a great pool player this person was. And actually in the course of the discussion, it came to light that he was a gambler. When, when it came to playing pool. And I was kind of thinking, wow, this is some eulogy. I have never heard one exactly like this before. But you see, if that was accurate, and I hope it wasn't, but if that was accurate, then he wasn't laying hold of the right things in his life. So, if people reflected on your life up to this point, would they say his main emphasis is taking hold of the unapproachable light? Or would it be something else? If you need to make a change in that, then please do tonight. Repent, confess, be baptized into water to have your sins washed away and to get on the road to heaven. Or maybe you need to reorient yourself toward God and maybe that's a personal matter between you and him. Maybe it's a public matter that you need to get taken care of tonight as we restore those who are erring. If that's you, come right now as together we stand and while we sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's word.